0: Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. As we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the badlands for positive life-changing experiences go to medora.com now enjoy the pod good morning and welcome to teddy talks for april 24th 2020 i'm your host Joe Wiegand, coming to you from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and wonderful destination uh, for you this summer and for Theodore Roosevelt as a young cattle rancher in the 1880s. On this date in history, in 1856 in France, the birth of Philippe Patton, the Lion of Verdun, so named for his victory over German forces uh, uh, during World War I, the French General and President Charles de Gaulle once said of Patin's life, he was, quote, successively banal, then glorious, then deplorable, but never mediocre. A uh, uh, life history of Philippe Patin would say that from being hero, uh, he then became scoundrel. Uh, he led the Vichy France, uh, the, the pro-Nazi French regime, Uh, after French capitulation to the Nazis in World War II. Uh, Put up on trial by the French people after World War II, uh, he was sentenced to death. Uh, He uh, instead died in prison uh, at the age of 94 in 1951. In 1898, on this date, Spain declares war on the United States, the Spanish-American War. Of course, as we said previously this week, the United States would in turn declare war on Spain on the 25th of April, but backdated the uh, declaration of war to the 21st, uh, at which point the American blockade of Spanish Cuba had begun. On this date in 1917, the aforementioned First World War, 58 year old Theodore Roosevelt wanted to get into that war, uh, lobbied his friends in Congress to do so, and so. Uh, On this date, April 24th, 1917, uh, the United States having declared war against uh, Germany, a uh, draft bill was uh, moving through the uh, United States Congress, especially in the Senate. And by draft, I mean a conscription bill to draft uh, soldiers and sailors into the service of the United States. Uh, And uh, Senator Harding of Ohio uh, was uh, found to be the vehicle to offer an amendment to add four volunteer divisions uh, to be uh, raised in the country and sent to France. And and of course, everyone knew that this meant uh, one of those divisions would be led by Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt's lifelong friend, uh, Senator Henry Cabot Lodge, and he a ranking minority member of the Foreign Relations Committee, a democratic majority then in the Senate. Senator Henry Cabot Lodge in favor of the amendment offered that day by Harding, said of Roosevelt, quote, he is known in Europe as is no other American. His presence there would be a help and an encouragement to the soldiers of the allied nations. For heaven's sake, is there any reason why he should not be given an opportunity if he desires to give his life for what he regards as the most sacred of all causes? Later in uh, May of 1917, Theodore Roosevelt would be informed of uh, Wilson's decision formally to reject his offer to raise one of these divisions, Roosevelt already having done much of the work of recruiting the leadership of that uh, division. And uh, it was then that uh, uh, the French president, Clemenceau, uh, Georges Clemenceau, he published an open letter to Wilson when Wilson's decision had been made public. Uh, very violative probably of all the protocols of diplomacy uh, uh, and instead published this letter for the world to consume uh, and he uh, said therein uh, it is possible that your own mind enclosed in its austere legal frontiers has failed to be impressed by the vital hold which personalities like roosevelt have on the popular imagination Referring to the uh, people of France, Clemenceau said the name of Roosevelt has this legendary force in our country at this time. Send them Roosevelt, I tell you, because I know it. It will gladden their hearts, unquote. Uh, Thank you to Edmund Morris in the third of his trilogies, Colonel Roosevelt. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt perhaps packed more of a lifetime into. His later years, uh, leaving the White House at the age of 50, uh, that uh, being then the subject of Edmund Morris's book, The Years After the Presidency. You can read Morris uh, non-sequentially. You can uh, delve right into the life of Theodore Roosevelt uh, uh, with The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt, a book that changed my life. Theodore Rex, uh, a great investigation of the presidency uh, of President Theodore Roosevelt. And then Colonel Roosevelt, from which I'm so very glad to have the opportunity to quote this morning. And on this date in 1986, the death of Bessie, uh, of Wallace Simpson, Wallace Simpson, uh, born as Bessie Wallace Warfield in 1896 in Blue Ridge, Pennsylvania. In December 1936, King Edward VIII, king of the United Kingdom in Ireland, gave up his throne to marry the twice-divorced and 40-year-old Simpson. Uh, the, uh, the former king and uh, uh, the uh, former Ms. Simpson uh, would finish out their life, I believe, in uh, Bermuda, the, uh, the Bahamas, uh, the British uh, holdings in the uh, Caribbean. She, uh, she was, uh, uh, died on this date in 1986 and put the world aflutter uh, back in 1936. Today, visits uh, with Theodore Roosevelt to Yellowstone, in 1903 and we'll get deeper into the national parks and the role of yellowstone in those national parks but i often ask audiences uh, during live performances uh, um, i'll ask what was our first national park and thank goodness some still know that it's yellowstone the first national park open to the public in the world uh, leading the uh, movement for national parks around the world but uh, legislated by Congress, signed into law by the president in 1872. So sometimes people go a bit too far with giving President Theodore Roosevelt credit for the national parks, or certainly a great impetus and advocate for the national parks movement, but there were already five national parks when Theodore Roosevelt became president. Uh, And uh, Glacier National Park uh, being, uh, I'm sorry, I misspeak, uh, Mount Rainier, Rainier National Park being named by uh, President uh, uh, McKinley in 1899. So five and doubled to ten during Theodore Roosevelt's time. Only three of his five remain as full national parks. But that's just in a way of saying that uh, uh, there's thousands of advocates for public lands, including the recently uh, celebrated birthday of John Muir and, and others but Yellowstone was certainly uh, in the fiber of Theodore Roosevelt. So glad to share with you remarks of Theodore Roosevelt's on this date, April 24th, 1903 at Gardner, Montana. Uh, He was there for the laying of the cornerstone of what was just considered to be the gateway. It would later be named Theodore Roosevelt Arch, above which are the words from the Organic Act creating that park in 1872, replicated in 1916, in the uh, Organic Act Creating the National Park Service. Sometimes I do say the only thing Woodrow Wilson got right. The words atop the arch, for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. If you listen closely, I think you'll hear them in the remarks given April 24th, 1903 by President Roosevelt after having camped a fortnight, or nearly so, in Yellowstone. Mr. Mayor, Mr. Superintendent, and my fellow citizens, I wish to thank the people of Montana generally, those of Gardner in Cinnabar especially, and more especially still, all those employed in the park, whether in civil or military capacity, for my very enjoyable two weeks holiday. It is a pleasure now to say a few words to you at the laying of the cornerstone of the beautiful road which is to mark the entrance to this park. The Yellowstone Park is something absolutely unique in the world, so far as I know. Nowhere else in any civilized country is there to be found such a tract of veritable wonderland made accessible to all visitors, where at the same time, not only the scenery of the wilderness, but the wild creatures of the park are scrupulously preserved. The only change being that These same wild creatures have been so carefully protected as to show a literally astounding tameness. The creation and preservation of such a great natural playground in the interest of our people as a whole is a credit to the nation, but above all a credit to Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho. It has been preserved with foresight. The scheme of its preservation is noteworthy in its essential democracy. Private game preserves, though they may be handled in such a way as to be not only good things for themselves but good things for the surrounding community, can yet never be more than poor substitutes from the standpoint of the public for great national playgrounds such as this Yellowstone Park. This park was created and is now administered for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. The government must continue to appropriate for it, especially in the direction of completing and perfecting an excellent system of driveways. But already its beauties can be seen with great comfort in a short space of time and at an astoundingly small cost and with the sense on the part of every visitor that it is in part his property, that it is the property of Uncle Sam and therefore of all of us. The only way that the people as a whole can secure to themselves and their children the enjoyment in perpetuity of what the Yellowstone Park has to give is by assuming the ownership in the name of the nation and by jealously safeguarding and preserving the scenery, the forests and the wild creatures. When we have a good system of carriage roads throughout the park, for of course it would be very unwise to allow either steam or electric roads in the park, we shall have a region as easy and accessible to travel in as it is already every whit as interesting as any similar territory of the Alps or the Italian Riviera. The geysers, the extraordinary hot springs, the lakes, the mountains, the canyons and cataracts unite to make this region something not wholly to be paralleled elsewhere on the globe. It must be kept for the benefit and enjoyment of all of us. And I hope to see a steadily increasing number of our people take advantage of its attractions. At present, it is rather singular that a greater number of people come from Europe to see it than come from our own eastern states. The people nearby seem awake to its beauties. And I hope that more and more of our people who dwell far off will appreciate its really marvelous character. Incidentally, I should like to point out that sometime people will surely awake to the fact that the park has special beauties to be seen in winter, and any hardy man who can go through it in that season on skis will enjoy himself as he scarcely could elsewhere. I wish especially to congratulate the people of Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho, notably you of Gardner and Cinnabar and the immediate outskirts of the park For the way in which you heartily cooperate with the superintendent to prevent acts of vandalism and destruction major pitcher has explained to me how much he owes to your cooperation and your lively appreciation of the fact that the park is simply being kept in the interest of all of us so that everyone may have the chance to see its wonders with ease and comfort at the minimum of expense I have always thought it was a liberal education to any man of the East to come West. He can combine profit with pleasure if he will incidentally visit this park, the Grand Canyon of the Colorado and the Yosemite, take the sea voyage to Alaska. Major Pitcher reports to me by the way that he has received invaluable assistance from the game wardens of Montana and Wyoming and that the present game warden of Idaho has also promised his hearty aid. The preservation of the forests is, of course, the matter of prime importance in every public reserve of this character. In this region of the Rocky Mountains and the Great Plains, the problem of the water supply is the most important, which the homemaker has to face. Congress has not of recent years done anything wiser than in passing the Irrigation Bill. Nothing is more essential to the preservation of the water supply than the preservation of the forests. Montana has in its water power a source of development which has hardly yet been touched. This water power will be seriously impaired if ample protection is not given the forests. Therefore, this park, like the forest reserves generally, is of the utmost advantage to the country around from the merely utilitarian side. But of course, this park, also because of its peculiar features, is to be preserved as a beautiful natural playground. Here, all the wild creatures of the old days are being preserved, and their overflow into the surrounding country means that the people of the surrounding country, so long as they see that the laws are observed by all, will be able to ensure to themselves and to their children and to their children's children, much of the old time pleasure of the hardy life of the wilderness and of the hunter in the wilderness. This pleasure, moreover, can, under such conditions, be kept for all who have the love of adventure and the hardihood to take advantage of it with small regard for what their fortune may be. I cannot too often repeat that the essential feature in the present management of the Yellowstone Park, as in all similar places, is its essential democracy. It is the preservation of the scenery, of the forest, of the wilderness life, and the wilderness game for the people as a whole instead of leaving the enjoyment thereof to be confined to the very rich who can control private reserves. I have been literally astounded at the enormous quantities of elk and at the number of deer, antelope, and mountain sheep which I have seen on their wintering grounds, and the deer and sheep in particular are quite as tame as range stock. A few buffalo are being preserved I wish very much that the government could somewhere provide an experimental breeding station of crossbreeds between buffalo and the common cattle. If these crossbreeds could be successfully perpetuated, we should have animals which would produce a robe quite as good as the old buffalo robe with which 20 years ago everyone was familiar, and the animals, moreover, which would be so hardy that I think they would have a distinct commercial importance. They would, for instance, be admirably suited for Alaska, a territory which I look to see develop astoundingly within the decade or two, not only because of its furs and fisheries, but because of its agricultural and pastoral possibilities. There, the remarks conclude. Interesting that uh, these remarks at Yellowstone conclude with uh, uh, some uh, uh, elaboration on the idea of uh, crossbreeding the bison and the cattle. Uh, some of Theodore Roosevelt's ideas, the modern conservationist certainly might look a little askew askance. The whole concept of the irrigation bill, damming rivers, uh, hydropower, irrigation, some uh, on the uh, far extremes of the environmental movement would find that to be uh, uh, not uh, the proper sort of progress. And Theodore Roosevelt can be uh, found guilty of advocating uh, uh, such uh, uh, popular ideas as draining the Everglades. Well wanted to get rid of the mosquitoes and get more cattle grazing ground right now we have a modern scientific uh, understanding of what a crime it would be to uh, drain the everglades and that sort of thing but in this regard uh, uh, interesting i i have not looked into how well the crossbreed of these uh, two species has, has done uh, my own sense is that actually it's something that uh, is uh, uh, increasingly something we attempt to prohibit or or uh, uh, inhibit, uh, at least, though I understand the bison out west, a great deal of it has a a bit of cattle gene in it as well. On this date, April 24th, 1906, remarks by the president in Annapolis, Maryland, at the Naval Academy, the uh, remains of John Paul Jones brought back to the United States from France the uh, relationship with France uh, during that Revolutionary War, during which uh, the uh, Scott-born uh, uh, John Paul Jones uh, showed himself heroic, uh, a captain in the United States Navy, and uh, serving most famously uh, on September 23rd, 1779, off the coast of Yorkshire on the Bonhomme-Richard. That's uh, a French gift, uh, a great battleship uh, laid down in 1765 under another name, renamed when gifted to the uh, uh, nascent United States. Bonhomme Richard, named in honor of the very popular in France, Benjamin Franklin and his poor Richard's Almanac. Uh, The uh, famous uh, words to be quoted by President Roosevelt in regards to the fight with the Serapis, his audience certainly would have known. The Bonhomme Richard sank in that battle, but not before from that ship. And with the aid of another ship, John Paul Jones had not surrendered, but rather uh, captured uh, the uh, the tormentor in this battle and rode away, uh, uh, carrying his flag now uh, aboard the Serapis, uh, which you'll hear. So uh, more on John Paul Jones at another date. Interestingly, uh, amongst the uh, homes in which John Paul Jones lived, one gifted to him by the people of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, now home to the Portsmouth Historical Society. And any of you on the Theodore Roosevelt Trail throughout the country visiting uh, Wentworth by the Sea and the uh, Naval Base in Portsmouth that has a, uh, across the way in Kittery, Maine, that has a small museum for where the negotiations of the uh, Russo-Japanese Portsmouth Treaty of 1905 were negotiated you must stop by the home of John Paul Jones. Some great history uh, comes to life at that institution. April 24th, 1906. On behalf of the American people, I wish to thank our ancient ally, the great French nation, that proud and gallant nation, to whose help we once owed it that John Paul Jones was able to win for the stars and stripes the victory that has given him deathless fame, and to whose courtesy we now owe it that the body of the long dead hero has been sent hither, and that to commemorate the reception of the illustrious dead, a squadron of French warships has come to our shores. The annals of the French Navy are filled with the names of brave and able seamen, each of whom courted death as a mistress when the honor of his flag was at stake. And among the figures of these brave men, there loom the larger shapes of those who like Tour, Tourville, Duquesne, and Baye de Suffren, one high renown as fleet admirals, inferior to none of any navy of their day in martial prowess. In addition to welcoming the diplomatic and official representatives of France here present, let me also express my heartiest acknowledgements to our former ambassador to Paris, General Horace Porter, to whose zealous devotion we particularly owe it that the body of John Paul Jones has been brought to our shores. When the body was thus brought over, the representatives of many different cities wrote to me, each asking that it should find its last resting place in his city. But I feel that the place of all others in which the memory of the dead hero will most surely be a living force is here in Annapolis, where year by year, we turn out the midshipmen who are to officer in the future the Navy, among whose founders the dead man stands first. Moreover, the future Naval officers who live within these walls will find in the career of the man whose life we this day celebrate, not merely a subject for admiration and respect, but an object lesson to be taken into their innermost hearts. Every officer in our Navy should know by heart the deeds of John Paul Jones, Every officer in our Navy should feel in each fiber of his being the eager desire to emulate the energy, the professional capacity, the indomitable determination and dauntless scorn of death which marked John Paul Jones above all his fellows. The history of our Navy, like the history of our nation, only extends over a period of a century and a quarter Yet we already have many memories of pride to thrill us as we read and hear of what has been done by our fighting men of the sea, from Perry and McDonough to Farragut and Dewey. These memories include brilliant victories and also now and then defeats, only less honorable than the victories themselves. But the only defeats to which this praise can be given are those where against heavy odds men who have stood to the death in hopeless battle. It is well for every American officer to remember that while a surrender may or may not be defensible, the man who refuses to surrender need never make a defense. The one fact that must always be explained, Uh, the one fact must always be explained. The other needs no explanation. Moreover, he who would win glory and honor for the nation and for himself must not too closely count the odds. If he does, he will never see such a day as when Cushing sank the Albemarle. In his fight with the Serapis, Jones's ship was so badly mauled that his opponent hailed him, saying, "'Has your ship struck?' To which Jones answered, "'I have not yet begun to fight.' The spirit which inspired that answer up bore the man who gave it and the crew who served under him through the fury of the battle, which finally ended in their triumph. It was the same spirit which marked the commanders of the Cumberland and the Congress when they met an equally glorious, though less fortunate fate. The Cumberland sank, her flag flying and her guns firing with the decks awash, while when summoned to surrender, Morris replied, never. I'll sink along, I'll sink alongside, and made his words good. Immediately after the Cumberland was sunk, the Congress was attacked and her commander, Lieutenant Joe Smith was killed. After fighting until she was helpless and being unable to bring her guns to bear, the ship was surrendered. But when Smith's father, old Commodore Joe Smith, who was on duty at Washington, saw by the disc- dispatches from fort monroe that the congress had hoisted the white flag he said quietly then joe's dead surely no father could wish to feel a prouder certainty of his boy's behavior than the old commodore showed he possessed when he thus spoke no naval officer could win could hope to win a finer epitaph we have met today to honor to the mighty dead Remember that our words of admiration are but as sounding brass and tinkling cymbals if we do not by steady preparation and by the cultivation of soul and mind and body fit ourselves so that in time of need we shall be prepared to emulate their deeds. Let every midshipman who passes through this institution remember as he looks upon the tomb of John Paul Jones that while no courage can atone for the lack of that efficiency, which comes only through careful preparation in advance through careful training of the men and careful fitting out of the engines of war, yet that none of these things can avail unless in the moment of crisis, the heart rises level with the crisis. The Navy whose captains will not surrender is sure in the long run to whip the Navy whose captains will surrender unless the inequality of skill or force is prodigious. The courage which never yields cannot take the place of the possession of good ships and good weapons and the ability skillfully to use these ships and these weapons. I wish that our people as a whole, and especially those among us who occupy high legislative or administrative positions, would study the history of our nation, not merely for the purpose of national self-gratification but with the desire to learn the lessons that history teaches. Let the men who talk lightly about it's being unnecessary for us now to have an army and navy adequate for the work of this nation and the world, remember that such utterances are not merely foolish, for in their effects they may at any time be fraught with disaster and disgrace to the nation's honor, as well as disadvantage to its interest. Let them take to heart some of the lessons which should be learned by the study of the War of 1812. As a people, we are too apt to remember only that some of our ships did well in that war. We had a few ships, a very few ships, and they did so well as to show the utter folly of not having enough of them. Thanks to our folly as a nation, thanks to the folly that found expression in the views of those at the seat of government, not a ship of any importance had been built within a dozen years before the war began, and the navy was so small that When once the war was on, our opponents were able to establish a close blockade throughout the length of of our coast, so that not a ship could go from one port to another, and all traffic had to go by land. Our parsimony in not preparing an adequate navy, which would have prevented the war, cost in the end literally thousands of dollars for every one dollar we thus foolishly saved. After two years of that war, an utterly inconsiderable British force of about 4,000 men were landed here in the Bay, defeated with ease, a larger body of raw troops put against it and took Washington. I am sorry to say that those of our countrymen who now speak of the deed usually confine themselves to denouncing the British for having burned certain buildings in Washington. They had better spare their breath. The sin of the invaders in burning the buildings is trivial compared with the sin of our own people in failing to make ready an adequate force to defeat the attempt. This nation was guilty of such short-sightedness, of such folly, of such lack of preparation, that it was forced supinely to submit to the insult and was impotent to avenge it. And it was only the good fortune of having in Andrew Jackson a great natural soldier that prevented a repetition of the disaster at New Orleans. Let us remember our own shortcomings and see to it that the men in public life today are not permitted to bring about a state of things by which we should, in effect, invite a repetition of such a humiliation. We can afford, as a people, to differ on the ordinary party questions, but we, if we are both far-sighted and patriotic, we cannot afford to differ on the all-important question of keeping the national defenses as they should be kept not alone keeping up, but of going on with building up of the United States Navy and of keeping our small army at least at its present size and making it the most efficient for its size that there is on the globe. Remember, you here who are listening to me that to applaud patriotic sentiments and to turn out to do honor to the dead heroes who by land or by sea won honor for our flag is only worthwhile if we are prepared to show that our energies do not exhaust themselves in words. If we are prepared to show that we intend to take to heart the lessons of the past and make things ready so that if ever, which heaven forbid, the need should arise, our fighting men on sea and ashore shall be able to rise to the standard established by their predecessors in our services of the past. Those of you who are in public life have a moral right to be here at this celebration today only if you are prepared to do your part in building up the Navy of the present. For otherwise, you have no right to claim lot or part in the glory and honor and renown of the Navy's past. So much for what we in civil life outside of public office and within it are to do for you and must do for you in the Navy. So let you in the Navy remember that you must do your part. You will be worthless in war if you have not prepared yourselves for it in peace. You will be utterly unable to rise to the needs of the crisis if you have not by long years of steady and patient work fitted yourselves to get the last ounce of work out of every man, every gun, and every ship in the fleet. If you have not practiced steadily on the high seas until each ship can do its best, can show at its best, alone or in conjunction with others in fleet formation. Remember that no courage can ever atone for lack of that preparedness which makes the courage valuable. And yet, if the courage is there, if the dauntless heart is there, its presence will sometimes make up for other shortcomings. While, if with it are combined the other military qualities, the fortunate owner becomes literally invincible. Theodore Roosevelt, Uh, the uh, body of John Paul Jones uh, had been buried in Paris. After serving for the United States, a soldier of fortune, uh, John Paul Jones became an admiral in the Russian Navy, and uh, his uh, burial in France, eventually the grave uh, went unknown. And so when Ambassador Porter is uh, is lauded by President Roosevelt, it's for the fact that uh, that ambassador was charged by Roosevelt with locating, finding that grave. The remains were found by medical uh, examination, wounds sustained by, by a scabbard and, and sword uh, that uh, the uh, body was properly identified. If you have a chance to visit the chapel in Annapolis, Maryland at the Naval Academy, I'm sure that eventually they'll have open hours for the public again. Go into the basement of the chapel first. take some time in the quietude of that chapel to give thanks for the United States Navy. A a great depiction of Farragut in the Battle of Mobile Bay, a south-facing stained glass window, very awe-inspiring. And then down in the quietude of the chapel, beautiful marble and and, uh, brass to my recollection and all sorts of uh, remembrances of the service of John Paul Jones. We've got battles ahead. Perhaps we can all be inspired, I have not yet begun to fight. I'm getting a good start, I'm getting warmed up. These Teddy Talks are going to proceed, hopefully get a lot better from my end. Thanks for your patience with me. Tomorrow, April 25th, a celebration of the anniversary on that date in 1947, thanks to the long, hard efforts of Congressman William Lemke of Fargo, North Dakota. President uh, Harry S. Truman, signed into law the creation of the South, what today we know as the South Unit, then named Theodore Roosevelt National Memorial Park. So we've got something to celebrate here. And when the park opens up again, May 9th, and and, uh, for the time thereafter, I hope that you'll come and visit the park where Theodore Roosevelt throughout that region at his ranch, uh, the Elkhorn, which is part of the park, he said, it's where the romance of his life began. All the best from Medora, North Dakota, See you tomorrow on Teddy Talk.